You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast for October, where we cover all the latest legislative and regulatory developments that advisors need to be aware of. I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today, I've got Kim Guest and Peter Wheatland. Now, today we've got a few different topics to cover. First up, we're going to have a look at some transfer balance cap announcements hot off the press government making some changes there about how those rules operate for clients with a cap-defined benefit income stream where they go through a fund merger via a successor fund transfer. So we'll come back and look at that. Then we're going to take a look at some impact, impending changes to the Social Security work bonus to apply from the 1st of January 2024, so from next year, which is going to be really good news for clients that like to supplement some of their age, well, their age pension with some paid employment. In addition, we're going to have a look at another good announcement to improve the flexibility of the Social Security system by doubling the existing employment nil rate period. Now, if you don't know what that is, neither do I. So stay tuned and we'll talk about that. That's uh, due to apply from the 1st of July 2024. Then we're going to have a look at uh, a government consultation paper around uh, its federal budget announcement relation to payday super. So that's an initiative which proposes to require employers to pay SG at the same time of salary and wages. So the government's consulting on that and asking industry a whole bunch of questions. So important to have a look at that. And finally, we're going to discuss the two other other podcasts that we're releasing this month. First one on the draft legislation uh, relating to the proposed 15% tax on total super balances over $3 million, specific the, the proportion of the balance over $3 million. Now now have a new name for that, at least Division 296 tax. So we'll have a look at that. And the advice implications of winding up a self-managed super fund. So, so let's get this started with me. So I'm going to start off talking about these transfer balance cap changes. Now, on the 26th of October, the government announced it's going to make some amendments to the transfer balance cap rules, which could help some members with cap-defined benefit income streams that have been adversely impacted by their fund merging with another fund via a successor fund transfer. Now, to understand this, under the current rules, such a merger would result in the member's original income stream ceasing and a new pension being commenced, which could then result through a series of debits and credits in the member having a higher transfer balance account value, potentially pushing them over their transfer balance cap and causing them to have an excess. So for example, First Tech is aware of at least one merger between two high profile funds that has resulted in some members who were receiving a complying lifetime pension in the original fund now exceeding the transfer balance cap due to the merger. And so what the government is now saying, it's going to fix this by ensuring that the members receiving an income stream prior to the merger will continue to receive their income stream without 
unintentionally impacting their transfer balance cap. Now, at this stage, we're not expecting any legislation to implement this until early next year, but the government has confirmed that any changes will be retrospective all the way back to the 1st of July 2017, so that's good news. And so if you have an impacted client, this is good news, so what you should be doing is keeping an eye out for that new legislation coming into effect next year. So we'll certainly be covering that as it comes through and the technical issues that come out of it. Now, moving on to some proposed changes regarding the social security work bonus and here to tell us about this is Kim. G'day Kim. Hi Craig. How are you? I'm well thanks. How are you? Yeah I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. So now we've got some changes to the work bonus. Now we've seen a few amendments to this over the last 12-18 months. So now we're getting some more changes come through as draft legislation. So can you tell us what they're suggesting here? Yeah, so as you know, we had um, a temporary increase to the work bonus and it was actually um, uh, due to expire on the 31st of December 2023. So they they temporarily increased the work bonus by $4,000 for uh, everybody who was a pensioner during the period, um, sort of the beginning of December 2022 to the 31st of December 2023. So everybody got a $4,000 increase, which was nice. And they could also, you know, add add additional credits up to 11,800 in their income bank. So that was a really good measure, but it was planned to finish on the 31st of December. But now the government has brought in some draft legislation to actually make that $4,000 increase a permanent thing, which is really good. So um, from the 1st of January, 2024, if this legislation gets through, um, all pensioners over age pension age and eligible veterans will be able to maintain or, or accumulate a balance up to 11800 in their mm-hmm. income bank for the that's, work bonus. That's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, and it was going to revert d- back down to 7800 so that's really good news. And also, they'll they'll be able to – new pensioners will get a $4,000 starting balance when they first start oh. off on the pension. So that, that's how it works now under the temporary provisions, and that's going to keep working as a permanent thing um, beyond 1 January 2024 if this legislation gets in. So normally, if you've got uh, – a new pensioners starting off, they they start off with a an income bank of zero. So you're saying they're going to start off with four thousand straight away in their in their bank account. Yeah, that's right. So when when this temporary measures came in, um, you know, from December 22 to 31 December 23, they said all all new pensioners who start during that period of time are going to start off with a four thousand dollar balance in their yep. in their income bank, mm-hmm. and and the legislation is going to say, okay, that continues to happen. So any new pensioners will get a four thousand um, dollar amount in their income bank when they first start off on the age pension. All right, now that all sounds like fabulous news. Um, I, I always, whenever I'm hearing about some new rules, I, I try and understand why they're doing it because it just helps it stick in my brain for some reason. So why is the government making this change to the work bonus? Yeah, so they they did a, had an employment white paper that they released back in September, and that was all around looking at ways to get more people into employment. We have a skills shortage, and um, we've, there's a lot of areas that are crying out for workers. So one of those the ways they're trying to address that is to get older people back into the workforce, and the the work bonus is really aimed at you know people being able to earn income from employment or self-employment for gainful work and that income not impacting their age pension under the income test as much due to the work bonus. So it's really encouraging them to get back into the workforce. Okay, fantastic. Now, thinking about this, I mean, obviously it's got an impact on those people already retired, um, potentially doing a little bit of work. 
How is it going to impact those that are planning to retire? Yeah, well, I mean, if they, um, under this measure, um, when they first go onto the age pension, they're going to have $4,000 in their work bonus income bank. And that means Mm -hmm. that they straight away, yeah. So that means that any employment income that they earn, um, the first 4,000 of that will be offset by the work bonus and won't um, reduce their age pension under the income test. So it really means people could apply for the age pension and perhaps they're working um, and they're planning on retiring and they're over age pension age, they could actually apply for the age pension, you know, a a few weeks or months before they plan to cease work um, and receive that age pension because that employment income uh, won't affect their rate of payment because due to the work bonus, the $4,000 work bonus income bank. So they can actually get a bit of age pension before they stop working. Well, it sounds like a great advice opportunity that clients can apply for the pension before ceasing work and and receive that $4,000 already in the bank. And also, I suppose for pensioners to be able to continue to accrue up to $11,800 in their income bank to offset future employment income. That's also fantastic news. Yeah, yeah, it's a really positive change. All right, thanks, Kim. Now moving on to our next topic. Uh, I understand there's another measure in draft legislation that is aimed at encouraging people into paid employment. So can you run us through this measure? Yeah, so it's actually part of the same bill. And this one is doubling the employment nil rate period. Now, some people might not have come across the employment nil rate period no, before. but Including but me. What it, <laughs> um, but it's actually a really good measure. So, what it's what it does, it says, okay, if you have some, if you're on a social security payment, like mm. say job seeker payment, for example, and you get some employment income and that employment income exceeds the income threshold and would normally cut you off payment, what we'll do is rather than cut you off and, and say you don't have access to your pension, your concession cards anymore and you and don't have access to any of the benefits will put you in an employment nil rate period and at the moment that's 12 weeks where you don't actually get any job seeker payment during that period but you continue to get the concession cards for example like the healthcare card um, and you also get a few other little um, benefits that that might be associated with that payment so the employment income is causing you to have a nil rate, yep. but you are still sort of notionally on the payment and, and able to keep the concession card. So increasing the flexibility, that, that's that's fantastic. So now you mentioned it applies to a wide range of income support payments. Do you want to run through the different types of payments someone can be receiving and get this nil rate period or increase to their nil rate period? Yeah, sure. So, so currently, people on these payments have a 12-week nil rate period, and that's proposed to increase to 24 weeks. And the payments are job seeker payment, youth allowance, Oz study, AB study, parenting payment, disability support pension, and carer payment. So that's just about all of them. It even applies to the age pension, but they have a separate two-year suspension period that applies to age pensioners. So, um, you know, often it's that one that's that's the affecting one rather this employment nil rate period for age pensioners. But, oh, okay. you know, all the other income support payments just about are covered by this provision. Right. So you said that even though their income precludes payment, they're still going to receive some benefits during the employment nil rate period. So what sort of benefits are we talking about there? 
Yeah, well, the big one is concession cards, as I mentioned. So if they're getting a healthcare card or a pensioner concession card, Mm -hmm. they'll remain eligible during that employment nil rate period. And there's also a a couple of other little tiny benefits like the childcare subsidy or telephone allowance that may continue to be payable during that period. And I suppose if their income reduces during that nil rate period and they're now below the income threshold, I suppose it's just easier process to start receiving the income support payments again? Yeah, that's right. They don't have to go through the whole reapplication. They just need to advise oh, yeah. Centrelink that their income has reduced um, and, and their rate will be you know, reinstated based on, on their new income and asset position. So it's a lot easier. And so when's this all proposed to commence? Yeah, so the nil rate period is meant to increase from 12 to 24 weeks from the 1st of July 2024. Okay, great. Thanks, Kim. Now, moving on to the next topic. Uh, The government recently released a consultation paper on Payday Super. Peter, can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So currently, employers are required to pay SG within 28 days of the end of each quarter. But one of the proposals announced in the last federal budget was to require employers to pay Super Guarantee at the same time that they pay salary and wages Mm -hmm. uh, from 1 July 2026 onwards. Um, This is designed to help address the issue of unpaid super by firstly making it easier for employees to recognise when their employer is not paying their super, Um, but also it allows the ATO to detect underpayment or non-payment of SG earlier than they otherwise would have. And the government has released a consultation paper on this and the consultation period ends on the 3rd of November. Right, so pretty short consultation pa- period. Um, how's the ATO going to know that, an under, that there's been an underpayment or non-payment of SG? Well, uh, the ATO is actually investing in a new unified database which allows them to match the data that they receive from employers via single-touch payroll with the data that they receive from super funds through the member account transaction service. Okay, so that's interesting. MATS is used by large APRA regulated funds to report super contributions, but like a third of the industry, i.e. self-managed super funds, don't report employer contributions via MATS. They report SG contributions on an annual basis instead. So is the government looking to change that? Well, there wasn't any change suggested in the paper itself, but one of the questions that they're looking to get feedback on is whether there should be changes to reporting frameworks for SMSFs. And some of the other things that the paper is looking to get feedback on is whether whether the payday super system should be structured as an employer payment model where it, impo- it imposes a, um, a requirement on the employer to make payments of SG on the same day that they pay wages or salary. Or slightly different approach is to have a due date model, which would require the contributions to be actually received by the super fund within a certain number of days following payday. Right, so it seems like a simple announcement. Just pay the SG at the same time you pay salary and wages, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that. And also in relation to self-managed shoe funds, that's really interesting. You know, a, a lot of the reporting around self-managed shoe funds is, is way slower than large APRA regulated funds. But are those kind of days coming to an end because of all of this? And, and will we see self-managed shoe funds needing to report 
contributions not on an annual basis, but maybe on a quarterly basis to, to try and bring it closer, closer to real-time reporting. Now, thinking about this, also, are there any other superannuation rules that could be potentially be impacted by requiring super to be paid real-time rather than on a, on a quarterly basis? Yeah, there were a couple of other uh, interesting issues raised in the paper. One is um, looking at how the penalty regime will work for mm. people that pay SG late. Yep. Um, so previously, when it was on a quarterly basis, basically everyone had the same deadline to pay SG. Um, but moving to a, you know, a, a scheme where the employer needs to pay at the same time they pay salary and wages, well, each employer, um, you know, they might pay on a weekly basis, a fortnightly basis, monthly basis. Yep. So you've now got a situation where there's varying timeframes and how does the, the late payment regime work in that sort of environment? Um, they also, another issue that they look at is the maximum contribution base which is the maximum amount of salary that an employer is legally obligated to pay SG on, um, is currently calculated on a quarterly basis. Um, and so there needs to be some consideration of whether the quarterly time frame is still relevant or whether that should also be changed. Yeah, I guess when you think about this, like imagine there, there's lots of employees out there that get paid, employees that get paid fortnightly. Um, and there are employees that get paid monthly. I've been employees of both of those different types of country, companies, and I can tell you, I much more prefer getting paid fortnightly than monthly. Now, but if all of a sudden an employer might have an SG charge related to their pay frequency, well, that might encourage employees to go to a monthly yeah. salary payment method, which I personally wouldn't really like. I like getting a fortnightly payment. So, well, we will certainly have to wait and see how this works. Now, Pete, there's no current legislative time frame for when employers need to make salary sacrifice contributions. I assume the consultation paper didn't include that in the considerations. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's right, Craig. Um, so it's likely that payday super, this payday super measure will only be applicable to SG contributions and won't apply to salary sacrifice contributions. Mm -hmm. okay. um, employees who enter into a salary sacrifice arrangement should stipulate a specific time frame in the agreement for when the salary sacrifice contribution should be made into their super um, in order to ensure that it's you know made in a timely manner. Um, the consultation paper also makes no mention of any carve-outs for smaller employers. So these measures would presumably affect all employers from 1st of July 2026. Okay, so coming back and thinking about that again. So if I'm an employer, do I really want to pay SG and salary sacrifice at different times? Now, does that complicate things? Does it potentially increase the risk of getting something wrong and then ending up with an SG charge? Or is it good because I, you know, it makes it a bit easier for my cash flow? So that's all going to be quite interesting. Okay, I, I think that covers everything. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Craig. So moving on now to the two other podcasts that the First Tech team are releasing this month. The first is on the proposed 15% tax on the total super balance over $3 million, which we now know will be called Division 296 tax as opposed to Division 293 tax. And how many times I've got that wrong in the past week, I, I couldn't actually count. 
Now, the government has released some draft legislation which broadly confirms how we thought the new tax will operate. However, it does provide some new interesting information that we will discuss on the podcast. So make sure you listen in if you have any interest in that topic. The second podcast is about winding up self-managed super fund. In this podcast, we discuss the reasons why a fund may need to be wound up as well as the big issues that you need to consider as part of that wind up process. So we're not gonna look at the steps wind up when we're looking about the things you need to consider as an advisor in deciding whether the client should wind up or not. So I think that brings us to the end of this latest news podcast. If you need any further information on anything discussed today, have a look at the latest news page on the First Tech site or give us a call at First Tech. And thanks guys. Thanks Craig. And thanks for listening everyone. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventius Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.